What is the purpose of marriage? What is the purpose of marriage? How we answer that question will have a determining effect on how we function in marriage. The question exposes our unexamined assumptions about marriage. But there's two basic ways I think we can answer this question. The world's answer is the purpose of marriage is to make me happy. Purpose of marriage is to make me happy. Now, the happiness can be defined in lots of different ways. Uh, Self-fulfillment, security, intimacy, commitment, financial stability. But basically, the world is saying the marriage benefits me in some way, and so I get married. The Bible answers the question in a different way, but it doesn't negate some of these fringe benefits of marriage. Yes, security. Yes, intimacy. Yes, there is a stability, a goodness. There is many, many moments of happiness. But Scripture sees the fundamental purpose of marriage not to make us happy, but to make us holy. Not to make us happy, but to make us holy. Or to put it a little differently, God gave marriage to reflect something of himself and to help individuals grow into that image. And so for those of you whom God has called to marriage, and that's not everyone here today, his main purpose for your marriage is not for you to be happily ever after. And if you've been married more than a week, you've figured out that the happily ever after is just a bit of a joke that we say. God's purpose for your marriage is to grow in holiness. As individuals, yes, but also more profoundly as a couple, as this one flesh union. So if this is our perspective on marriage, it's going to change how we approach it. If we're not yet married, but we'd like to be, it's going to change, it should change, um, who we marry, that that person we're looking for. If we have that idea, it's not about personal happiness so much as it's about holiness. But also for those who are married, it's going to change how we actually function in marriage. But the challenge we face as Christians is that we're living in this world that's thoroughly saturated with the idea that marriage is for personal happiness. Marriage completes us in some way. When we take that position to its extreme, it's actually devastating for marriage. I think it's the undercurrent of what's happening with divorce rates, with redefinitions of marriage. It's this idea that marriage is just about me and my personal happiness. Well, for the last two Sundays, we've been considering how the Apostle Paul applies the gospel to relationships. We've been at Ephesians 5. We'll be in 5 today. We'll move into 6 next week. But Paul is taking all this amazing gospel that he's preached in 1, 2, and 3, and he's saying, hey, let's, let's filter this down. Let's apply it to relationships in general, but also some specific relationships that are very significant, specifically marriage and the family with children and slaves and masters, which we'll look at in a couple of weeks. Last week, we looked at Ephesians 5, verse 21, where Paul talks about mutual submission. He says, submit to one another. So everyone can practice submission with everyone. There's a way that in any relationship, we can give up our rights, that we can come under someone else to serve them, to lift them up for their good. But beginning in chapter 5, verse 22, Paul is going to take this practice of submission, which is right at the heart of gospel-filled relationships, and he's going to apply it to marriage. And he does this, and he shows us this biblical purpose of marriage, holiness. 
He shows us this wonderful picture of how marriage reflects God, specifically how it reflects the love, the relationship between Christ and his church. But for a marriage to do that, for a marriage to reflect that to the world, the husband and the wife must actually relate to each other as Christ relates to his church and the church relates to Christ. And at the center of that is submission. I want to structure this morning by addressing a word to three different groups because we're all in different places today. The first word is to singles because you're actually a part of this conversation on marriage. Second is the word to wives. That's how Paul structures it. And third is the word to husbands. So singles, wives, husbands. So first, this word to singles. You are actually in this text You are in this text and it has a lot to say to you. Whether you're single because you're not yet married, which you'd like to be, or you were married, but that marriage ended because of death or divorce, you are in this text and you are part of this conversation. Well, where are you in the text? Well, as we go along in Ephesians 5, Paul will talk about the love between Christ and his church. And if you are in Christ, you are part of the church. And so you're right at the heart of this text. And so my encouragement would be for you to to let it speak to you about Jesus's profound love for his church and the church's profound response to that love. You're not excluded from this conversation about marriage. It's about God and his love. You're actively participant in that. So drink deeply for yourself, let it be an encouragement, but also let it fuel your prayers and your counsel and your support for marriages around you, marriages in your family, marriages in this church. Married couples need the prayers and the encouragement and yes, even the wisdom and counsel of singles in the church. Don't think you don't have something to say because uh, you're not yet married or because your marriage didn't work out. One of the greatest advocates for Paisley's and my marriage is this dear friend. She stood with us at our wedding. She later got married and then she later got divorced. But she prays for our marriage. She encourages our marriage. She has something to say that we need to hear. So singles, you do too. You're in this text. You're part of this conversation. Second, a word to wives. That's actually where where Paul begins in verse 22. He starts with wives. He speaks to them first. The fact that he even addresses wives is a sign of the gospel. You see, in Paul's cultural context, wives, children, and slaves, these three groups that he's going to address first, they had no social status. They were simply expected to submit to their superiors, no questions asked. So at first glance, we might read this because Paul's going to go on to say submit, but we might say, well, well, well Paul, he's just, he's just propping up the, the patriarchy of that culture. Actually, he's not. He's undermining it with the gospel because he actually speaks to wives, children, and slaves. He treats them as free moral agents. The world says to them, you, you should submit because you're socially inferior. Know your role. Paul says you're free in Christ. You're not inferior. You're a free moral agent with full dignity. And then he'll go on and he'll tell those groups to submit, but for a completely different reason. Not because they're less than, not because, well, the cultural institution demands it, but because loving submission is the way of Christ. 
It's this outworking of a relationship with him, that relationship that makes you free, that makes you full of dignity. So wives, don't miss that. Don't miss that. The simple fact that he says wives, that he starts talking to you first is an affirmation of your dignity and worth. You're not a piece of property to be ordered around by your husband. You're not a second-class citizen. You're free in Christ. You're equal. And it's in that spirit that Paul goes on and he says, submit to your own husbands. Submit to your own husbands. Now, this can be a difficult word for many women, for many wives. Maybe you're not married, but you you see how that got worked out in, in your parents' marriage or you see how it's being worked out in a friend. And, and so, understandably so, many women, many wives, are nervous about this teaching. It has been misapplied. It has been abused. And so I want to look carefully at uh, unpacking this by looking at the how, the why, the when, and the what of submission. How, why, when, and what. So wives, how should you submit to your husband's? There's two key relationships that determine the how. Your relationship to your husband and your relationship to the Lord. First, your husband. Paul says, submit to your own husband. Not somebody else's husband, not to men in general, but to your own husband. Now, why is that important? Because the relationship is the context. This sacred union between you and your husband, that's the context. That's where this submission thing gets worked out. Even if your marriage is struggling right now, God has joined you together in a sacramental way. You made vows before him. And hopefully, whether you've been married a year or 50 years, there's intimacy, there's history, there's affection, there's trust. I know sometimes these things waver. They go up and down, but that's the context of this submission. It's this deeply personal relationship between you and your beloved. It comes out of your history. It comes out of your shared memories, your, your hard times, your joyful times, the times where you hurt each other and forgave each other. It comes out of every, just everyday casual conversation, all the stuff that makes up your marriage. That's where and how he's calling you to submit. I think Paul is, is wanting wives to deeply personalize this command, not to see it as this kind of cold theological dictum, but a wonderful, warm invitation to live fully into the unique relationship that God has given to you and your husband. So that's the first part of how, this relationship between you. The second is the relationship to Christ. Paul writes, wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. As to the Lord. Now, he's not saying that your husband is your Lord. That would be blasphemy. Jesus alone is your Lord. And as your Lord, he asks for himself your full submission. Jesus deserves your full submission in everything. Jesus is worthy of your submission. He died for you. He's redeeming you. He is your life and salvation. Your husband doesn't actually deserve your submission. Can I just put that myth aside? He does not deserve it. He is not worthy of it. Even the best husbands are not worthy of their wives' submission. But your Lord Jesus is asking you to submit to your husband, even when he's not worthy of it. 
And so submitting to your husband is actually this act of submitting to the Lord. I was listening to this sermon and this, this, this preacher was given this, this wonderful illustration of every time you, you talk to your husband, imagine Jesus just beyond the shoulder of him, that you're, you're talking to him, but you're also talking to Jesus. And, and how would your words come out then? And, and how would the disposition of your heart be if, if Jesus was there and, and you were really offering the submission to him, not just to your husband? And so Jesus calls you as wives to, to stoop down, to, to come under your husband, to serve him, to trust him. But there's something surprising that you find when you do that. When you, when you stoop down to, to serve him, Jesus is already there. Long before you said your, your vows to love this man, Jesus was loving him and serving him. And giving up his life for him. Long before you got down on your knees to to wash the feet of your husband. And there you saw all his filth. You saw all his junk. And when I got married to Paisley, I I was putting on a good act. And I remember that I was this strong, confident husband. And I was trying to love her and do everything right. And I remember about month three, the bottom fell out. And I couldn't fake it anymore. And she started to see my sin. and my She probably saw it beforehand. But at least to me, she started to... Jesus was already seeing that, friends. Wives, Jesus already knows the the sin, the the filth of your husband. He's down there first washing his feet. Long before God called you to trust your husband, Jesus was trusting your husband. Jesus was giving him incredible responsibility and dignity. Not because he deserved it. Not because he was worthy of it. But out of love. So that's the first thing, the how. How how do you submit? It's got to be in the context of these two relationships, of the unique relationship with your husband, the intimacy you share, and of your relationship with Christ. And if there's some women here today, some some wives who who aren't Christians, you haven't bended your knee to Jesus, then, then I would submit to you that that would be a wonderful way to strengthen your marriage. Because without Christ in the equation, it's going to be a more difficult thing to do. So we have the how, what about the why? Why do you submit? Well, Jesus asked you to do it, but Paul actually gives us the logic behind it in verse 23. He says, for the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church. Now, what does Paul mean by head? That's the $10 million question. Theology of this verse hangs on this word. Some have suggested that head does not mean head over. Rather, it means source, as in like the headwaters of a river. And I think people who choose this interpretation are trying to distance themselves and distance this passage from this abusive way that it's sometimes applied. They're trying to get rid of patriarchy and husbands being authoritarian, understandably so. This verse has been used to the detriment of women. But there's some problems with this interpretation of head as sort of source, like the headwaters of a river. First, it really doesn't fit the context linguistically and theologically of the passage. Wives, submit to your husbands. Well, why should we do that? Because the husband is the source of the wife. He's the headwaters of the wife. I mean, it does go back to Genesis and how the, the wife came for the husband, but it doesn't actually fit as well if you follow Paul's argument. The other problem is that the vast majority of uses of the Greek word for head, it means head over. It has some sort of sense of authority. 
So I'm sympathetic to those who want to rescue this teaching from patriarchy. I agree, we should rescue it from that. But I don't think redefining head in some obscure way is the best approach. I think the problem with this word is what we do is we bring our bad experiences of authority, we bring a worldly definition of authority, and we assume, well, that's clearly what Paul must mean by head, and so we resist that interpretation. But what we should do, rather than bringing this this Roman understanding, this worldly understanding of authority, is to bring a gospel understanding of authority. Why would we not do that? And Jesus lays out clearly a gospel understanding of authority in Matthew 20. The disciples, they're arguing about who's most important in Jesus' coming kingdom. The the mother of the sons of Zebedee has kind of gone to Jesus. That's what I read and said, hey, can, can my sons have the most important place? Can they sit with you in your kingdom? The other 10 are mad about it. And what does Jesus say? Matthew 20. You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them and their great ones exercise authority over them. It shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant. Whoever would be first among you must be your slave. That's gospel authority, friends. That's gospel authority. It's the authority which means you're first to be last. It means actually giving your life away by coming under another, being a slave, giving up your rights and desires, serving their good. That's the understanding of head that we need to let fill out Paul's meaning here. It does mean head over. It does refer to your husband's authority in your marriage. It does talk about his leadership role, but it fills out the picture of how that authority is used in a completely different way. God has given your husband the the headship in your marriage, not to lord it over you, but to serve you, to serve your good. Now, that doesn't mean that God always calls your husband to do what you want. Sometimes I think it's where we can get hung up. A wife might think, well, if my husband isn't doing what I want, then he's not laying down his life for me. He's not serving me. Well, God calls your husband to serve your highest good, the things that benefit you the most. Sometimes that's going to be meeting your desires, your needs, your wishes. A lot of times it will mean that, but sometimes it won't. Sometimes husbands will just get it wrong. But God still calls you to submit to him because he is a good authority in your life. Not a perfect one, but a good one. In the long haul, it's going to strengthen your marriage and bless you profoundly as you submit to your husband. I want to refer you back to the sermon two weeks ago. If you haven't listened to it, go listen to it on submission and authority. We have this natural tendency to resist authority, even good authority, men and women. Wives and husbands, all of us. It's part of our fallen condition. But when we look at authority from the beginning, we see that God establishes all sorts of different types of authority, really expressing his own authority. And the reason he does that is to protect and promote what? Those of you who are here, shalom. Shalom, this this biblical Hebrew word for peace, but it refers to to wholeness, to flourishing, to well-being. That's why God's given authority. So why should you submit to the authority in your marriage of your husband? Because God has established him to increase shalom in your marriage. To come out from under that, to thwart that, to resist that is to threaten shalom. It's to destabilize your marriage. So we've seen the how, we've seen the why. What about the when? When do you submit to your husband? 
Look at verse 24. Ephesians 5, now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. So when? All the time. In everything. Even when you think you know better, even when he's doing a bad job, even when you're just tired of submitting. Yeah, I submitted last week, not going to do it this week. There's no area of your life where you get to hold on to control and say, well, this is mine. I'm not letting go of this part of my life. I'm not inviting his leadership here. The call is to submit in everything. Now, last week, I noted two very important caveats or exceptions to this, which were abuse and sin. If you're in a marriage or you know somebody in a marriage where the the husband is physically or verbally abusing his wife, she's not called to submit to that. She needs to get safe. She needs to get help. Or if your husband is leading you into something that's clearly sin, you're not called to submit to that either. You, you don't have to be rude about it, but you can respectfully say, I love you, I want to submit to you, I want to follow your leadership, but I, but I won't in this area because it violates my submission to the Lord. So those would be the two exceptions to this. Now, practically speaking, does this mean that your husbands should make all the decisions and that you should be a doormat? Because I think that's the, the fear that comes up in the heart of many women. That's what we resist. I don't think that's what Paul is spelling out. Every couple needs to decide how different areas of responsibility and decision-making are broken out. Husbands need not be controlling, but need to delegate responsibility and authority to their wives. Being head does not mean being micromanager. Some of the worst managers and heads and leaders are micromanagers. Being head means recognizing the gifts of your wife, the calling of your wife, and empowering her to do that. See, Jesus, as the head of the church, he delegates a ton of responsibility and authority. He trusts us with a lot. I love the picture of the wife in Proverbs 31. She is not a doormat. She is using her gifts. She is leading. She is being all that God has called her to be. And why? What's her husband's response? What's her relationship to him? Tells us right at the beginning, Proverbs 31, he trusts her. He trusts her. Later, he praises her. He is empowering her to be all that God has made her to be. And she's not bucking him. She's not throwing off his leadership. She's thriving under it. So a submissive marriage does not mean a disempowered marriage. It doesn't mean a one-sided marriage. Rather, it means this marriage built on mutual trust where a wife is fully empowered by her husband and the Lord to, to lead, to serve, to do all that God has called her to do. So that's the how, the why, the when. Finally, what does submission look like? What does it look like? Jump ahead a few verses to Ephesians 5, verse 33. Paul's gone through the the word to husbands. He's gone through uh, some of this imagery between Christ and the church, and he concludes this little section by saying, however, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. Respects her husband. Why not just say, love each other, right? He actually says, husbands, love your wives, but wives, he uses a different word. He says, respect. Husbands, I think, experience great love through their wives through respect. I think respect here is actually another way to define submission. It's to tell us, well, what does this look like? A husband is respected when his wife practices submission, when she yields to his leadership, when she comes under it, when she celebrates it. 
early in our marriage, as many couples, Paisley and I had to deal with money. We had to work through money. We're still working through it. We're always working through it. But there was a time early on where we had different perspectives on money. It was hard. It was really, really hard. And to be honest, she was a lot better at it. She had a lot better wisdom, a lot better discipline. I spent every dollar I made, which wasn't hard to do, working on Capitol Hill. She saved well. And so we had these difficult conversations around it. But over time, she gave me opportunities to lead. She shared her thoughts. She shared her wisdom. She shared her advice. I deeply benefited from those. Uh, She shared her goals, her wishes, and I I tried to accomplish and and arrange our finances to meet some of those goals, but she allowed me to lead, and I don't think it was easy for her because I wasn't always doing it right. But she trusted me even when I wasn't worthy of it. And through that profound respect, God caused me to grow, I think, into a better husband, into a better leader, including in this area of finances. But I couldn't have done it without a respect. Wives, some of you desperately want your husbands to lead. You're dying for him to lead. Take more initiative with the kids. Pursue me romantically. Get us out of debt. Help pursue this this spiritual part of our life together. But you cannot nag your husbands into leadership. You cannot control them into leadership. You can't fight them into leadership, but you can respect them into leadership. They will respond to your respect, to giving them these opportunities to lead, to submitting to that, and to celebrating it. Celebrating it. Calling it out, affirming it. All right, wives, you're done. You can go get a cup of coffee. That was the hardest part for me. Here I am, a man, talking to wives. But now, husbands. Husbands. Paul turns his attention to us in verse 25. His word to wives was challenging, I think. It's a very challenging word. But his word to husbands raises the bar even more. Because he says, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. So what's the standard for husbands? It's Jesus' love for the church. I mean, that should make you kind of scared. It should make you kind of laugh. I mean, that's a huge standard. You want to understand what, what does it look like in marriage? What should I be doing? How should I be treating my wife? How should I? You look at Jesus and how he loved the church, what he did for her. So I want to look at two specific things that Jesus did in his love for the church that we can do for our wives. First, Jesus never abdicated his position of authority with the church. Jesus never stopped being its leader and head, even as he served, even as he laid his life down. He never stopped being the head. Now, there are some places in our culture, there's a lot of places in the world where authoritarian husbands are lording it over their wives, and they need to hear this text. But I honestly think the greater concern in our culture today is not patriarchy anymore. It's husbands who are not leading their families. They've abdicated. They've let the wife run the home, run the marriage, do the parenting while they escape into work, into sports, into sexual fantasy. The wife is exhausted. The husband's completely checked out. That's a very common version of this abdication. It's a tragic one. But there's another version. There's a subtler version, a church version. It's the mistaken notion that leadership just means appeasement, just means going along to get along. We husbands sometimes do that under the cover of laying down our lives, and we really might be well-meaning. 
But what happens is we start avoiding. We don't engage. Even when our marriage or our children are inviting us, calling out to us to engage, to lead, we, we, we'll, we'll step back. Husbands, sometimes we need to be the ones to initiate the conversation about the marriage, the tension in the marriage, the, the thing that we're not talking about we need to talk about. Husbands, we need to be the ones sometimes to say, you know what, we're, we're, really, we're kind of in a rough patch. That's okay, we'll get through it. Let's go see a counselor. Let's go talk with a pastor. Let's go get some prayer. Husbands, we need to be the ones that, that say, hey, we need to put the brakes on spending. I, I know it would be nice to have that vacation or to do this, but, but let's not go further into debt. Let's, let's hold back here. Your wife may not make it easy for you to leave. She may fight for control in every situation. She may not respect you, but don't give up. Don't become authoritarian. Don't start lording it over. Don't start, well, I'm just going to be stronger. No, you don't need to do that, but you also don't need to abdicate. Continue to lovingly assert, gently assert your leadership in your marriage. Initiate a conversation about you and your wife about that. We go back in Genesis 3. We see what happened there. And we see how tragic it was that Eve was tempted. She believed a lie. We fell. Adam was tempted. He was right there. He believed the lie and he fell. And all humanity was broken in our relationships with each other and with God. But I think there was this huge tragedy that came before Eve's temptation. Who let the snake in the garden? Who allowed him to hang around? Adam had authority from God over all creatures. He had dominion. He had charge to lead. He could have crushed the serpent before the serpent spoke a word, before he even got close to his beloved. At the very least, he could have said, shut up, when he began speaking lies. He could have silenced the serpent, but he didn't. Instead, Adam himself was silent. He abdicated. Thanks be to God for the second Adam, Jesus Christ, who crushed the head of the serpent, who spoke truth into the face of lies. We would be lost without him. Husbands, you are being made into the image of the second Adam, not the first. God has given you authority to lead, to pray, to speak truth, to serve, to crush the head of the serpent in your family. Don't abdicate this sacred responsibility. So that's the first thing Jesus did or really didn't do. He, he didn't give up leadership. But the second thing was that he laid down his life for the church. He laid down his life for in verses 25 and 26, Paul starts talking to husbands, but very quickly he goes into this beautiful description of, of Jesus' love for the church and what he did for. And he writes this, Husband loves your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present her, the church, to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. The way Jesus loved his body is the way we're to love our wives. How did he do it? He gave himself up. Literally, he delivered up his life. 
and it had an effect. It wasn't just this empty gesture that said, oh, look, it actually had an effect on her. It, it cleansed us as the church. It renewed us. It, it got right into our ugliness and our sin, and it made us beautiful again that we might be in right relationship with him. And we can't take this too far because, husbands, we don't save our wives. Jesus does that work. Jesus alone does that work. But we can love like Jesus when we model him in delivering up our lives so that God can be all, that our wives can be all that God is creating them to be. The very goal of our loves is, is that our wives might become more and more beautiful. Go back, back, back to the garden in Genesis 1, 2, and 3. I love the image of, of, of the husband being like this, this gardener of his wife's heart and soul and life and body, that, that he might do everything to, to tend that soil, that, that God, the Spirit, would grow in her something beautiful. He's always attending to her. He's always helping her. He's always saying, how can I serve her that she might be more and more like Christ? And there's one way we have to do that, and that's to actually to lay our own lives down. We come under our wives. We lay down our selfish agenda. We die to that desire to check out that we have. And just as our wives have loved us in the face of our sin, we, we keep loving them even when they don't seem worthy. We keep loving them in whatever state they're in, in whatever part of beautification they're in. We love them when they're emotional. We love them when they're needy. We love them when they're tired and exhausted from parenting or work or whatever. We love them when they're unavailable or unable to meet our needs. We love them when they're stressed. We love them when they're fearful. We never stop loving our wives, even in the face of sin, just as Jesus did never stop loving us. So what does that look like to actually lay down our lives? I think it appeals to something in men, that great, noble, I can lay down my life for my wife, and I bet every husband in here would actually die for his wife. But probably God's not calling you to do that. He's actually calling you to do the lot harder thing of doing it every day in all these little ways. In verses 28, 29, Paul gives this great illustration that helps men know what it feels like, what it looks like to care for their wives. He writes, beginning verse 28, in the same way husbands should love their wives as their own body, he who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church. I think men are pretty good at taking care of their own needs. When we were in uh, marriage counseling, kind of premarital counseling, um, we had this mentor couple, and I remember meeting together with them, and the, the wife said to Paisley, men are just naturally selfish. And I was like, hey, I think she's right in a way. Men are more naturally geared to, to just take care of ourselves, to, to be independent or whatever that looks like, where women, I think, are more hardwired to actually nourish and to care for others. And so Paul's going to say, listen, I get it, man. I get it. You want to take care of yourselves. You're good at it. You cake, you want, you're hungry, you eat. You're, you're, you're sleepy, you sleep. So he's saying, you know how to take care of your own body. Your wife is your own body. And he goes on and he talks about the profound mystery of that, how you're this one flesh union. So he says, that's how you care for your wife, as if you're caring for your own body because you are. You don't have any problem nourishing and cherishing your own needs, so do so for your wife. They're your needs. The same level of importance, the same level of urgency that you have for your own needs, you have for hers. 
for her well-being. That could be physical, could be emotional, could be relational, but that's how tuned in we are as husbands, as tuned in as we are to our own bodies. So friends, what's the purpose of marriage? If it is personal happiness, as the culture tells us, then nothing Paul has said really makes sense. It doesn't fit. But if it's to be holy, if it's to reflect God, if it's to reflect the love between Christ and his church, then what he says fits perfectly. But far from actually diminishing happiness or restricting us, following God's design for marriage leads to greater joy, to greater freedom. I know in this room right now there are some marriages that are really strong. There are some marriages that are somewhere in between, and there are some marriages that are struggling right now. It's a lack of trust, a lack of affection. Wherever you are, first of all, you're not beyond hope. And wherever you are, I would encourage you as individuals, but also as a couple, to take this to the Lord and to say, are we as a couple submitting to God's desire and will for us? Or have we somehow subtly bought into this personal happiness motif? And begin to ask him for help. It's not easy. Go back to last week. The only way you can do this is by being filled over and over with the Holy Spirit. It's not easy. But you come under him. You confess to him. You ask him for his help. And he will help you. He will fill you. He will enable you. Let's pray. Oh, Father, we thank you for marriage what a gift it is to all of humankind, what a gift it is to reflect your love, your goodness to the world. And so we pray over the marriages in this church that you would strengthen them, that you would fill people with your spirit, husbands and wives, that they might live out this gospel-filled picture. Lord, I pray for the singles in this church, those who have lost a spouse due to death or divorce, that you would profoundly comfort and teach and encourage them. I pray for those who are not yet but would like to be married, that you would provide for that desire of their hearts the right kind of partner in holiness, not in personal happiness, Lord. We bless you. We thank you for marriage. We pray it in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen.